before we do look at our passage this morning, we're going to actually just look at a few verses, um, because they're quite important in uh, Isaiah chapter 40. Um, But just by way of kind of review and recap for some of you that haven't been here in a little little while, or uh, some of you that are visiting, we are going through the book of Isaiah. We've just finished looking um, at uh, chapters 36 through 39, which give us two kind of historical events. Uh, Isaiah records two historical events. He reverses the order of them chronologically. So he gives us, um, in chapters 36 and 37, uh, he tells of um, Assyria's armed forces surrounding uh, Jerusalem and Hezekiah's um, response to that. It's, it's what we might call Hezekiah's finest moment as he trusts the Lord. He prays, asks for help, um, refuses to give in, uh, and the Lord dramatically rescues the city. And then we saw uh, last week in chapters 38 and 39, um, previous to that episode, um, Hezekiah had become sick um, and had serious sickness. Isaiah tells him he's going to die. Uh, he's around 39 probably. Uh, and Hezekiah again prays uh, to the Lord, and the Lord spares him, says he's going to add 15 years onto his life. Uh, and then Hezekiah has this um, meditation on, on life and death, where he reflects on what happened to him. He says he's going to commit himself to the Lord, he's going to tell other generations. Um, and there's, again, kind of a high point. But then it's followed immediately in chapter 39 by this episode where um, there's a contingent that comes from Babylon to uh, give him gifts and to sort of um, celebrate his recovery. But it also turns out that they're kind of trying to make an alliance with uh, Judah. And Hezekiah, though he has just committed himself to um, to a, a kind of spiritual awareness and a God-centered uh, purpose in life, he immediately is wowed, dazzled by these Babylonians, welcomes them with delight, shows them everything in his kingdom, and Isaiah says, uh, all of this is going to go to Babylon, and your descendants are going to be carried off. Um, And it's a very, very low point, right? So that's the backdrop to what we're going to look at now uh, in in chapter 40. And so we're left uh, at the end of chapter 39 with some serious questions, primarily because of of what Isaiah said. Let me actually read. So Isaiah uh, 39, starting verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Where he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Um, so quite a difference uh, at the end of that chapter compared to um, 36 and 37, where Hezekiah had um, shown strong leadership, there was victory, now there's this weakness. And it's really the, one of the main points we made last week was uh, that Hezekiah is not that final servant of the Lord whom the Lord had promised would rescue his people, ultimately and finally, right? It's not Hezekiah. Um, He's a man. He's weak and he's flawed. Um, But we're left now with these questions, again, 
questions like, does the banishment to Babylon mark the end of the history of the Lord's people? You know, are they going to be just all be carried off and that's it? Um, are, are God's promises um, of, of a king to you know, sit on the throne forever, is that, is that now gone? Have they forfeited that? Um, questions like, does this mean that, that Israel and Judah have been guilty of sin that's beyond the power of the Lord to save? Well, of course not, but is it perhaps beyond the willingness of the Lord to save them? Have they sinned so, so much that now this is the last word, this is it? Um, really another, another way to put some of these questions in a kind of positive sense is, is the Lord, uh, is God the Lord of history? Can he recover his people from this other land? And is he the God of salvation or will sin have the last word? Will Israel and Judah's sin, uh, be the final word? And that's what chapters 40 through 55 are about to answer. Those are the questions that, uh, Isaiah is going to answer in these these chapters that are often called the book of the servant. So chapters 40 through 55 um, is a message really for anyone. Now this is meant initially, we'll see these chapters are, are targeted at the exiles in Babylon. Um, so there's going to be kind of a gap between 39 and 40 in terms of who the intended audience is. Um, though that's far down the road, Isaiah is kind of writing this section for those people in the future. Um, the, his contemporaries could take hope from it, uh, but ultimately it's for those people um, on, in exile in Babylon. They're the ones in view. But obviously the message is meant for anyone, right? And it's really meant for anyone who is in a, uh, a hard place. A verse one will, will, or verse two, excuse me, we'll call it um, a hardship, but it really means a hard duress. Anyone who's under duress because of their own wrong choices, because of their own faithlessness, because of their own sin, right? Which is which is where Judah um, and Israel are, and that's like all of us before uh, before we come to Christ, right? We're all in that situation. Um, Alec Motier says that um, the way he the way he kind of describes the transition from thirty nine now going into forty. Uh, is that Isaiah has kind of put himself in a, in a little bit of a bind in terms of the message he's giving because he's been at times holding out hope uh, for the people of Judah and yet it looks now like there is no hope. There's a, it's a very bleak, um, a bleak picture now. There's this almost a sense of finality with this impending judgment that's coming uh, upon them. And, uh, and it's really... You know, if you think of it literarily, we're at that height of tension in the book of Isaiah. This is, this is it. Uh, and the rest of it is, in some ways, a resolving of that tension. Um, so we're going to look just at uh, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11 today, because there's a lot in those verses. Um, let me go ahead and read that section, unless you have any questions about that really quick overview of the last four chapters, kind of where it sets us up. Everybody have kind of the picture where we're at? So remember what I just read at the end of chapter 39, and then notice the contrast now as we open uh, chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So there's a lot going on in this um, section, as I mentioned. Um, And it's kind of... Functioning in, in kind of two, two uh, sort of related ways. So one of the things that this section is doing is it's um, it's kind of like a recommissioning in a sense of Isaiah, uh, and you can see that especially if you notice in verse six uh, where it says a voice says cry and I said what shall I cry? The parallel to that in some ways is way back in chapter six when uh, Isaiah received his first commission from the Lord. And, um, and Isaiah says, what shall I say to them, right? What's the message I'm to, uh, or, um, or actually, sorry, in, back in chapter six, he says, how long shall I preach, right? So the Lord says, um, you know, commissions Isaiah to bring this message, and it's a message of judgment, as we've seen. Most of the first 39 chapters are a message of judgment on Judah, with, with elements of hope and restoration and comfort and consolation, but primarily judgment. And Isaiah says, how long do I preach this? And the Lord tells him, you're going to preach it until the cities lie waste, until everything's desolate, there's no one, nothing left. Here now, he's kind of recommissioned for a second phase of his work, uh, and he says, what shall I cry? What's the message I'm to give? Um, so this is going to be a new, a new work, uh, in some ways, for Isaiah, um, and it's going to be a hopeful one. Um, the other function that this section is serving, that these, these verses are, um, the purpose that these verses are serving, is kind of a, an overture, almost like a musical overture that introduces all of the different themes that are going to be developed further in the section from 40 through 55. So some of these things, we saw one of them right away in verse 1, is comfort. That's going to come up over and over again, is comfort. Um, atonement or forgiveness. You see it in verse 2. Um, her iniquity is pardoned. That's going to come up over and over again. Um, the way of the Lord in verse 3. The glory of the Lord in verse 5 is going to be prominent in these, uh, in these 15 chapters. Um, the power of the word of God. You saw that, right? And that'll, that'll show up again. Um, the city of God in verse 9. And then this mix that we're going to talk a little bit about 
in chapters 10, or excuse me, verses 10 and 11, this mix of uh, the, the Savior's might and tenderness, both his might and his tenderness. Um, so we're left with a sense, after reading this, this uh, short section of, of a new movement that the Lord is going to do um, with his people. Um, so we're going to divide this up. We'll look at uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to take 3 through 5, 6 through 8, and 9 through 11. It's kind of chunks together. Um, so we see again right away that there's that stark contrast, right, in verse, in verse 1. Uh, we're left with this sense of dread and uh, doom from the end of chapter 39, and then immediately the word is comfort. Comfort my people. Uh, this is the, the message um, that, that is kind of startling in a way, right, because of this abrupt shift from the end of chapter 39. Um, and, and one of the big questions is answered immediately when Isaiah says, uh, comfort my people, says your God. Those, the, the possession there is, is significant because one of the questions would be, has, has the Lord abandoned his people? He hasn't, right? They're still his people. Uh, he is still their God. And the, the, ver, the way we have it translated, says your God, is, is actually probably better translated. It would sound weird and awkward in English, but it's actually at the, the imperfect. So it's a, he keeps on saying, the Lord is he's going to keep on saying, comfort my people, comfort my people. Um, this is the message that he's going to bring. Um, God's covenant still stands. He hasn't forgotten them. Uh, is the sense that we get immediately from, from verse 1. Uh, and then in verse 2, notice he says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Um, speak to the heart, literally. So both in a tender manner, but he also wants, he's, he's saying, persuade them. Um, speak in such a way that it moves them. Um, and, and he calls them Jerusalem. So he identifies, there's, there's parallel there. Uh, for your people, or my people, and, and Jerusalem. So he's identifying the people of God directly with the city, um, which is important. One of the, there's a really excellent um, children's Bible um, called the Big Picture Story Bible, and it, it keeps reiterating that one of the big messages that you see over and over in the Old Testament is, uh, in some ways you can very simply state it, it's, it's God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's, that's what he's doing. He's gathering a people for himself to be in his place under his rule. Um, and so what Isaiah is doing here, I think, is, is saying, hey, this tie between um, you, my people, and the city of Jerusalem, it's still there. In other words, I'm still going to use Jerusalem in a way to bless you and the rest of the world, which we know he does ultimately through Christ. Um, but there's, there's that link there. Um, even though they're far away, they're not in that place, there's still a connection there between God's people and God's place. Um, and then he says uh, a few things. Her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned and that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Uh, warfare, again, is actually probably better understood as hard duress or distress. Uh, and it's, it has the sense that this hard duress serves a purpose. There's a reason for it. It wasn't just simply um, 
you know, purposeless. There's a reason. The Lord actually has brought this about for a reason. Um, and then we get this pronouncement that her sins are forgiven. Um, her iniquity is pardoned. And um, I, I think some, some, and sometimes, sometimes it's easy for us to kind of gloss over these kinds of statements because we're so familiar with the gospel. Um, but, but it's interesting here, and we'll find out later, and we already know kind of how this happens. How is it that the Lord can pardon her iniquity? But if you think about it, it's, it should be startling because um, when the Lord begins to bring the people back from exile, it's only been 50, 60, 70 years for some of them, right? Um, the, some, of, some of the people are carried off beginning in 603 BC, um, and then 587 is the fall of Jerusalem. And Cyrus issues the decree that the people can come back in 539 BC. So that's, that's not very long of time for the sins of generation after generation after generation of God's people rebelling against him. And yet he says, he makes this pronouncement, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. How can that be? Ultimately, right, we find out starting in chapter 52, the end of 52 into 53, it's because there is uh, someone else who will pay that sin, right? It's the suffering servant um, because of his sacrifice, uh, the Messiah, God can say, your sins are pardoned. But at this point, it's a little bit startling to say, your sins are, are pardoned, you're, you're forgiven. Um, so this is the opening section, right, for this, for this chapter. For now, it's just this pronouncement. Your sins, are, your sins are forgiven. I bring you a message of comfort and hope. Let me pause there. Any questions on that so far? Okay. Now we're going to see we've got three uh, sections that all describe something about God that is meant to comfort his people. So he, he made these pronouncements, um, these kind of an introductory pronouncements, uh, that there's a message of comfort, um, their, their sins are pardoned, but then also he's going to say three things about the Lord himself um, that are meant to give comfort to these exiles. So the first one in, sec, in cha, verses three through five is about the coming glory of God. Uh, and these are well-known verses, obviously, right? All four Gospels um, quote uh, verse 3 when they speak of John the Baptist coming. Um, so we're very familiar with them. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, this is a picture of, of a visiting dignitary or ruler of some kind, um, some, someone that should be esteemed and honored, coming with his full procession, is the idea here. Um, that it's the Lord who is coming across the, across the desert, over the wilderness. Uh, and the sense is that he is um, coming to this city and... The idea is that nothing will stand in his way. There's, there's nothing that can stop him, right? 
Uh, the road will be level. It'll be flat. It'll be straight. There's no obstacles. Uh, prepare for this coming king. We're going to see in the last section of this that um, he's also bringing his people with him. Uh, but we don't see that quite yet. Here it's just the announcement of the coming of the Lord. Uh, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So it's not just um, the people in that particular place that will see it, but everyone will see the Lord in his glory. Not just Israel, not just Judah, uh, but the entire earth. And so this is the first hint of um, the this kind of missionary note that's going to also crop up through these chapters. Uh, that's going to get stronger and clearer. Um, the fact that what God does for his own people is not only for their sake, but it's also for the sake of others to know him as well. Um, we'll see that also in, uh, in verse 9. Um, but we see that here as well, that this is not simply a localized thing, but the, the Lord's glory is, is ultimately going to cover the entire earth. Uh, and we also get this hint of the, the word of the Lord, right? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that's going to um, pop up again here um, in a couple verses, as well as uh, later throughout this section. So we see the coming glory of God here uh, in this first section. Uh, and then in verses 6 through 8, we see the word of God. So we have the glory of God, and now we have the word of God. Um, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, there's um, there's um, a nice little pattern here that doesn't jump out at first. Oh, I don't have markers. Oh, hopefully these were right. Um, but it's basically, it uh, goes kind of like this. So you have A, B, C, and then what we'll call A prime, B prime, C prime. So you'll notice um, in verse, at the end of verse 6, all flesh is grass, right? So humanity is like the grass. In what way? How is how is flesh like grass? Withers. That's right. It withers. It fades. Right. The grass withers. Flowers. The flower fades. So what's the point of that? It's temporary, right? Um, in contrast. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, notice that. So this is, again, it's not quite as clear initially, but we'll see after we get this structure, this pattern written out. What's another word for breath? Spirit. So we could say it like this. God's breath or the spirit of the Lord is permanent. And then notice... Um, in 7c, so at that last section of verse 7, surely the people are grass, which sounds a lot like this, right? So again, 
Immunity is like grass. Um, we get a repeat in the first part of verse 8. The grass withers, flower fades, right? So, same thing. And then, at the end of verse 8, the word of our God will stand forever. So now you can kind of see the parallel here, right? With the Spirit of the Lord uh, and the Word of, of God um, together. Obviously, the, the point is that the Lord, His Word, His Spirit, uh, all of that is, is permanent, it's eternal, in contrast to man uh, who is fading, right? And um, so there's, there's this call to then, what's the, what's the implication of that? Isaiah is obviously not just stating something to state it. Um, what is, what is, how does he want his hearers to respond to that? And how does he want then us to respond? Well, we should, re- we should rely on the Lord's word, right? We should trust it. Um, believe. We, what's that? Believe. Believe, yeah. Believe it. Uh, make it your sure foundation for your life, right? Whatever else happens around you. Uh, you exiles in Babylon, whatever is going on around you, whatever, um, whatever circumstances you're in, whatever uncertainty you face about your future, um, stand on the permanence of God's word and His promises. They are sure and they are certain, right? Uh, and the Lord will work by His Spirit and through His word to accomplish His purposes. So we've got the coming glory of the Lord. We have the word of the Lord, both meant to encourage uh, us uh, whenever we're in difficulty. And then this third section, verses 9 through 11, uh, we're going to call that the arm of the Lord. Um, in in the, the phrase, the arm of the Lord or the arm of God, um, typically signifies his power, his power to act. Uh, Isaiah actually uses it probably more than any other biblical author. And, and even when he doesn't specifically say the, the arm of the Lord, he'll talk about rolling up his sleeves. Um, we're also going to see here, though, uh, it's not just his power, but it also can be used for tender care. Um, so verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Uh, so first, Isaiah is giving, uh, giving them the command to take the message they've received, the message of comfort, and tell it to others, right? Uh, that, that word herald is the same uh, word family that in the Greek ends up being euangelizo, um, or evangelize, but it's, it's that notion of good news, right? Proclaiming the good news. Um, so the one who has received it, the good news, back in verses 1 and 2, is now told to be the one to carry that good news to others. Um, proclaim it to, uh, and we, 
in, in this case, it's, it's the cities, Zion and Jerusalem, proclaiming it to the other cities of Judah. But ultimately, it's meant to be taken to the, to the world, as we'll see in later chapters. Uh, and that message, again, is one of comfort because God is coming with might and his arm rules for him. Um, there's that sense, the picture that we've seen a couple of times of the Lord as the king uh, ruling his people, right? So that king that we saw in verse 3 uh, coming across the wilderness is now coming um, and says, Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Um, it's not quite clear yet at this point what that reward and recompense is, but I think verse 11 actually helps to explain it. Uh, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So the sense here actually is the, the, the reward that the Lord brings with him is his people. Uh, it's, it's his flock uh, that he's caring for. Um, and uh, notice again that the, the Lord's arm is not only one of ruling or power, uh, but it's also an arm that will care for, gently care for those in need, right? Uh, gather the lambs, um, carry them in his bosom that is close to his heart, uh, and lead those who are with young. So this, this is certainly good news, right, to these exiles. Uh, and you can see why the gospel writers uh, would quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, and, and say that, you know, John the Baptist is, uh, in a sense, the fulfillment of this as well. This, this is the kind of Old Testament forerunner to the New Testament gospel. This is good news, right? All those elements are there uh, of forgiveness, of the presence of the Lord, uh, release the... Um, you can see John you know, picking up on, on the picture here of the Lord as a shepherd, right? When he talks about Jesus as the good shepherd... Um, just all of those elements here, just in these few verses. Uh, and as I said, we'll see these pop up again throughout the rest of the, the coming section. Um, so what are some application then uh, from, from these verses? What are these, uh, what do these mean for us here now? These themes of um, of comfort for God's people when they're in distress of their own making, really um, the theme theme of, of the glory, the coming glory of the Lord, um, the permanence and eternality of His Word, His arm of might, uh, and His arm of tender care. What are some things, lessons we can draw for ourselves from that? I'll let you take a couple of minutes to think if you have some ideas that you can come up with. Because it's it's kind of a question we should always be asking, right, when we when we come to scripture. It's not simply like what is the what is the content, what are the facts about this, what's the background to it? Okay, we've got the main message, but then what do we do with that message? Any any ideas or thoughts? Take your time uh, to think for a little bit. How ought we to live in light of these things? Yeah, David. 
<clears throat> I mean, I think since this is fulfilled in Christ, you need to think of the scope and splendor of, of, of what this means for us. I think like, it's impossible for a Christian to live with a sense of doom uh, hanging over him as though, or, you know, I'm about to go into exile. I've never, I've been brought back from exile permanently. Like, that's over. Uh, yeah. That's not the reality for God's people. The reality for God's people is all of this is true now for us. And so, I don't know, that just gives me faith to live in the, yeah, in the, the power of the age to come. Yeah. It's just broken in. Yeah, that's good. Christians ought to be a hopeful people, right? A, a very hopeful people because of what the Lord has done for us. That these things are, they're true for us. Uh, we know he is, you know, he has come already in some sense in Christ and won his people. And he will, we know he will come again, finally, right? Uh, in judgment against his enemies, but in a gathering of his people to be with him, right? God's people in God's place under God's rule is ultimately what the end of time will be, right? What else? What he says he will do. What he says he will do. Yes. Does it always uh, look the way we expect it to look? No, it often doesn't, right? Uh, and sometimes we can get caught up thinking, well, I thought this was going to, this was the way it was going to work out. Um, but the Lord might have other ideas. He won't let his promises fail, right? He will do what he has said he will do. He doesn't always do it the way we expect or think he will do it. Yeah, that's good. What else? Emma. That we're supposed to shout that truth of his glory from the rooftops. Yeah, that's right. We who have received good news, news of comfort and consolation and forgiveness of sin, ought to be proclaiming that to others, right? Uh, that's certainly a, a takeaway from, from this. We should be proclaiming that message loud and clear to those around us. Uh, and, you know, I, I confess, I think, probably with all of us, at times we, we fear, right? As verse 9 says, fear not, lift it up. We ought not to fear it, right? That, there may be people who will reject it, and and uh, we may be ridiculed, we may suffer for it, but we, we need to proclaim that good news to others. Um, that's part of the reason that the Lord has saved us as people, is to proclaim that, that good news to others. Yeah. What are some other in, ways? In conjunction with what she said, this is a little sidelight. I got a, a mailing from my doctor on how to live a long life. And one of the things, in fact, one of the first things was to be optimistic. Yeah. The optimistic people live longer. Yeah. And healthy. <laughs> so it's good for your health also <laughs> to be hopeful, to live in that way and proclaim that good news to others. What are some other... One of, so one of the things I've thought about um, as I was th thinking through this is, is where is my source of comfort? Um, you know, at times when we're faced with difficulty, um, it's tempting to find comfort in all kinds of places, right? Uh, family or friends. Um, but sometimes sin is a way to like get out of a difficult situation or you want to sort of find comfort somewhere. You run to a particular sin. Maybe it's just like, I'm just going to enjoy some like downtime. Um, and things like family and friends are good and can be helpful, but, but the first place we ought to always turn for comfort is the Lord himself, right, and his word. 
that should be uh, an immediate turning um, when we're in the difficult time is, is comfort. The Lord is our comfort. Any other thoughts? I think for me, um, is that God is always ready to bless. Because whenever we see God in the Old Testament, He comes as one with strength and might and ready to, to right what was wrong and to give justice. And so sometimes, for me as a Christian, I forget His mercy and I see Him as, I'm going to punish you. But actually, He's actually more... His heart is more is, is is quick to bless, like like it's in, in verse eleven. Yes. He's punishing, but actually, um, he has to punish the wrong because that's his um his character. But I think what rules all of that justice is his mercy, because he does not forget that these people that he made are really grass, and that once he takes out the spirit from us, we're we're done for, you know. But then he's actually a shepherd. He picks us up and he's very gentle. Yeah, verse 11 especially. Notice even the detail. He will he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Um, it actually should be singular arm to match verse 10. But notice the last part. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. There's a sense that he understands the mothers with their children. Like He knows how to lead even them specifically. Uh, there's this particular care for the individual sheep in his flock. That is very true. The Lord is, he is good. Um, and it's kind of a, just a preview for the next couple of sections. I don't know how far we'll get next week, but the next big sections are going to talk a lot about that. Um, it's not a contrast. It's that combination of the Lord as mighty and the Lord as good, right? We, we have to always keep those together, right? His sovereignty and his goodness go together. He's the sovereign one who rules over all, but he's doing it for the good of his people, to bless them, to care for them, uh, to nurture them, right? Um, we don't need to fear, as, as Christians, we don't need to fear his sovereignty, his providence, his might, and his power, um, because he will use it to bless and care for his people. He will use it to judge his enemies, but if you're in Christ and Your sin has already been judged, right, in Christ. You get blessing and care um, like a shepherd for his sheep. All right, any other thoughts before we close? Let me pray, then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, uh, which is, Uh, true and permanent and eternal, and uh, we can count on it, we can trust it, we must believe it, Uh, even as we saw in the passage here. We thank you for um, all of these uh, rich themes that will be developed more um, by Isaiah in these coming chapters, but we do pray, Lord, and ask that you would help us to remember this message of uh, comfort that we've received through Christ, um, who is the fulfillment of these passages. Uh, He is the good shepherd. He is the one who uh, both rules and cares for his people. Um, We thank you that only because of Jesus is our uh, iniquity pardoned. Uh, His blood was sufficient to pay for our sins. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to rejoice in that, to live as 
hopeful people, um, knowing that um, you are our king and our shepherd. And would you help us, Lord, also to proclaim that message to others. Help us to be uh, like uh, Zion and Jerusalem are, are called to in this passage. Help us to be those who proclaim the good news of the gospel uh, to a dying world. Would you bless, uh, again, the time of worship this morning, and we thank you for all of this. We pray all of this in uh, the name of that great King and Shepherd, uh, the Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.